Well, a big thank you to worship team for leading us so well this morning. It's hard to believe, but uh, this is the last sermon in our parable series, and uh, we have tackled seven of them this fall. And uh, special thanks to Jesse Hale for all of her wonderful artwork that captures uh, each parable. Today, we're obviously doing the parable of the ten virgins, and a feature of this parable is the lamps. And so the icon there is representative of the lamps. Uh, hard to believe we start Advent next week, uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Where did the fall go? Oh man, it's gone so fast. And uh, as I have been reading and studying the parables this fall, it reminds me that there's actually, I believe, 39 parables of Jesus. And it uh, feels like we have just barely scratched the surface. So I was wondering if at some point I did another series on the parables. Would you all be okay with that? Would that be? All right, okay. We'll tackle those in the future at some point. Well, we are going to talk about the parable of the ten virgins or the the ten bridesmaids today. And the central focus of this parable is the idea of preparation, of being prepared. And uh, I came across a great little story this week. And it involves Winston Churchill, Britain's uh, Prime Minister, during the Second World War. And if you know anything about Winston Churchill, you know that he was the master of the inspiring speech. When historians look back and they look at the state that Britain was in in the early parts of the Second World War, they often comment that if it hadn't been for Churchill's voice booming through the radios of the people of England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales, if his voice hadn't been there to rally the nation, historians look back and wonder if the nation would have lost courage because they faced overwhelming odds. And uh, Winston Churchill had a son. His name was Randolph. And Randolph was a politician in his own right. And uh, U.S. President Richard Nixon uh, told the story to one of his advisors, where he got to meet Winston Churchill's son Randolph. And the two of them met together, and they shared stories and talked about a whole thing. And at one point, Richard Nixon said, he said, you know, one of the things I admire about your dad is the way that he was ready to do an impromptu speech, kind of off the cuff at any moment, at the drop of a hat. And Randolph made this very amazing statement. He said, oh yeah, I've watched my father work for hours preparing those impromptu speeches. What seemed like just off the cuff, he had prepared and worked so hard for. So that's one end, that's extreme preparation. On the opposite end, is the statement by Frank Knox, Secretary of the U.S. Navy, three days before Pearl Harbor was bombed. This was his statement. Dwight's going to throw up the slide for us. No matter what happens, the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping. (laughs) Apparently that was a little bit more talk than actual preparation. In our parable today of the ten bridesmaids, or as it's typically called, the ten virgins, Jesus focuses in on one particular type of preparation. We're going to discover that today. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. If you go to the middle of your Bible and kind of work forward, you'll hit Matthew. Matthew 25 verses 1 through 6. Or as Ray said, start the app on your smartphone, your new OceanView app. How cool is that? Bev, do you have the new OceanView app? Well done. That is so great. Matthew 25, 1 through 6, I'm going to read. At that time, the kingdom of heaven 
will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but not, did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Pretty interesting parable, and it centers around the idea of a wedding. Now, in order for us to kind of properly understand what's going on in this parable, what Jesus was trying to convey, we need to switch our minds a little bit from our Western process of how we get married to a more Middle Eastern. And in the Middle East, there's three stages in getting married. Uh, There is the first stage of engagement. And this is where the groom, the guy who wants to marry your daughter, sits down with his potential father-in-law. And they work out a little deal. They work out a contract. He essentially says, how much is it going to cost me to marry your daughter? And uh, they kind of go back and forth. They have a cup of coffee. They barter back and forth. And finally, they arrive on a price. What is the price for your daughter's hand in marriage? So that's a little different engagement uh, than we are used to. The bride isn't actually involved at that point. It's between the groom and his prospective father-in-law. Well, then comes the moment of betrothal. And this is where the groom actually pays the price for his bride. And the bride is ultimately no longer under her father's roof. She is bought with a price. And after that is done, that covenant, that promise, that agreement is sealed by both the groom and his father-in-law drinking out of a cup, the same cup of wine. Very interesting little feature of that. And we're going to comment on that in a second. And then in the betrothal ceremony, the bridegroom speaks a blessing over his bride. And he makes a promise to her. He says, I'm going to take a year and I'm going to go build us our new home. I'm going to go build us a new house. And so typically he has a year from the date he's betrothed to go and finish working on that house. And he works hard building that house. And she doesn't see him a lot during that year. She'll see him occasionally. But most of the time he is away working on their new home. Now if you think about it, in this parable, Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the one that is purchasing his bride. And who is the bride? The bride is the church. Everyone throughout history who puts their faith in Christ. Everyone who is part of the church. And so it's pretty interesting that Jesus uses this process of marriage. He uses this metaphor in this parable. And if you think about it, the engagement is kind of like those prophecies. The first one is in the book of Genesis right after humanity sins. And God enacts his rescue plan. He says, I know because humanity has run away from me, because they have turned their backs on me, because sin has entered the world, one day there's going to be a price to be paid. And then in the betrothal ceremony, it says that the bride is no longer under her father's roof, she's going to be under her, her husband's roof. And that covenant is bought with a price. 
And that's exactly what Christ did on the cross for us. He bought us with the most expensive gift he could ever pay, his own life. And then that covenant is sealed by the drinking of a cup of wine. And then finally he leaves and he's gone for a year building a house and then he comes back. And all of a sudden when we understand those kind of features and what was going on in the background, then we, when we come across scriptures like these two, it makes so much sense. First one I want to read you is John 14, 1 through 4. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm going away. When he was resurrected, he left. And part of this parable is saying, I'm going to take a while. It's going to be a long time, but I will absolutely come back. I will redeem my bride, the church, and I will take you back with me. And then that feature where the marriage price was paid and sealed by the drinking of a cup. When we read about Jesus at the Last Supper, then it helps us understand what's going on. Matthew 26, it says, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, said, Drink it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'll not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is saying, I'm going away and I won't drink of the cup again until we're married. So then there's the actual wedding ceremony. So you have an engagement, a betrothal. Then there's the actual wedding ceremony. The groom doesn't tell the bride exactly when the wedding is going to be. She knows it's right around that one year mark. And she'll be making preparations and getting ready but she doesn't know exactly the hour or the day. But the big signal is that the groom returns. He's now back in town. The house is complete that he has built for them. And it would get around town pretty quickly. It would say, hey, hey, your, your groom is back. It's so exciting. Your wedding is any day now. And the bride and the bridesmaids, she would gather her friends. In this parable, there's ten, ten bridesmaids, ten of her best friends. And when the groom decides, then the wedding happens. And that is so true when you think about it in terms of Christ. If he's the bridegroom, he's the one who sets the date of his return. He's the one who knows when he's coming back. Despite all the thousands of books that you'll find in the discount bin at the Christian bookstore from people who thought they knew when Jesus was coming back, they actually don't. Jesus is the only one. The groom decides. And when the bride hears the commotion, she begins to gather her ten bridesmaids, her ten uh, virgin friends. Now, what's happening there is that the groom would get ready he would have a whole bunch of people helping him. They would prepare the, the wedding hall. They would prepare all the, the things getting ready for the wedding. And then once everything was complete, once all the preparations were complete, then they start singing and making music and there would be tambourines and instruments and they'd be making a huge ruckus. And they walk 
through the streets. And so that's exactly what's going on in this parable. That's why she and her ten bridesmaids, her ten virgin friends, that's why they actually fall asleep. Because they have to be ready at a moment's notice. But they've been preparing and waiting so long that they, they finally fall asleep. And they know that it's no problem because when that big parade starts, all that music is going to wake them up. When they come to the place where the Titan bridesmaids are, they along with the bride will then join in to the procession. Now each bridesmaid has her lamp and it's supposed to have oil in it. And the idea is they light their lamps and they go out and they join the bridegroom and the bride has the place of honor and everyone gathers around and there's a huge parade of people and on each side of her are her best friends, are these ten bridesmaids. And they walk with them through the streets and each one's holding this lamp and it adds a lot of light and a lot of symbolism to what's going on. So these bridesmaids, they have a pretty simple job. They're supposed to get the bride ready, and they're supposed to have a lamp ready to go. Now that's all good in theory, but not all of the ten bridesmaids got with the program. So we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Matthew 25, 7 through 9. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. The foolish ones brought their lamps, but they were empty. Five of them had empty lamps. They did not take one bit of oil with them. Now, that's an extremely important point to grasp. They likely traveled during the day with no need to light their lamps, The others, the five wise bridesmaids or the five wise virgins, had thought ahead, brought oil with them because they anticipated the arrival of the bridegroom and made sure they would have everything they needed to do their part of the job. You know, it's kind of interesting. Every Tuesday, I make uh, the staff do a little life journal. We do a little study on whatever passage I'm preaching on. So I made Bev and Jordan this week uh, do the study on this parable. And as we read through it initially, and as they picked a verse, they both had the same comment. They said, it strikes us that these five wise bridesmaids are pretty ungenerous. They're not very hospitable. They have enough oil. Why don't they share with those who don't? What's wrong with these five? Are they just kind of selfish people? What's going on with this? And so I said, that's a great question. And it's interesting, as they studied, it kind of came to light What exactly does the oil in the lamp represent? And it turns out that the oil in those lamps is representative of salvation, of us knowing Christ personally, of us taking Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And it's all tied up with the presence of the Holy Spirit. As Jesse's icon kind of shows us, there's a flame in the middle of the lamp, and that is always associated with the Holy Spirit in the second half of the Bible. And so there's a sense that when we are followers of Christ, when we have received salvation, the promise is that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, lights us up just like a lamp. 
A lady named Evangeline Ciliana has captures what that meaning is in this quote. She says, Just like the parable of the bridegroom and Jesus, this oil they have and didn't have is salvation and also a type of the Holy Spirit which intertwines with salvation. Hence, why when we understand what Jesus is talking about, we get that these wise virgins were not being selfish by not sharing their oil, but simply that they could not. They were unable to share their oil, just like people who are saved are unable to share their salvation. Salvation is personal. Nobody can tag along on somebody else's relationship with God. So that's what's going on in this parable. Salvation and the subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the oil. Do you see why the five bridesmaids couldn't share? They can't. It's impossible. Commentator Jack Crabtree summarizes like this. He says, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Many are called, but few are chosen. He is saying something very similar to that in this parable. Many are invited and will join in and wait for the bridegroom, but few will actually remain to follow him to the feast when he comes. You know, as with all of Jesus' parables, they hold incredible real-life warnings and teachings for each of us, even though we are separated by almost 2,000 years from the time when Jesus originally told the parable. It says, many are called, and that is so true. I was thinking the other day, the amount of avenues that the gospel is proclaimed in our world is pretty staggering. There is a million things on the internet. There are Christian radio stations broadcasting into areas. There are missionaries all over the world. There are uh, millions of publications. There are organizations giving out Bibles. There's evangelists going around the world. And there's millions and millions and millions, actually I think it's almost 2 billion Christians on planet earth. And we are meant to be sharing our faith. And for those regions in the world, maybe in a Muslim-dominated country where it doesn't seem like there's lots of access, I've heard story after story after story where Muslims who are truly searching for God come face to face with Jesus in a dream. And it turns their world upside down. And as I was thinking about all those avenues that the good news of the Gospels proclaimed all over the world, I thought, you know what? It's true. Many are called, but few will choose. I was thinking about some of the things that our church has done this past uh, fall. We had a great uh, small group uh, centered around the book, Thinking, Answering Life's Five Biggest Questions. And uh, we had a great small group, and lots of people went, and, and everyone who went seems to have really benefited and enjoyed from it. But I was thinking about the amount of people that Pete, the guy who led this, the study, the amount of people that he invited. He invited a guy from work, he invited people he goes hunting with, he invited a whole bunch of people. And none of them came. I was thinking about the amount of people that I had invited to that small group. And I think only two of them came. And that's okay. It's in God's working, God's timing, God's providence. But you know what? It's true. Many are called, but how many will choose? It makes me think of our big outreach event coming up on Saturday, Christmas Tales. There are posters all over this town. There's Facebook invites. There's all of us have been making personal invites. Many are called. How many will choose? 
But it's ultimately people's free choice. That's one of the amazing things. God never, ever forces people to choose him. He gives us the gift of free choice. Jesus is ultimately warning our world in this parable. He's saying, prepare now. Don't miss your chance because one day I'm coming back as the bridegroom. And you must be spiritually ready. You must believe and accept me and live for me now. You know, all of us know people that have not yet decided to Christ, to follow Christ. We must be good friends to them regardless of whether they ever say yes to Jesus or not. Our, our friendship isn't conditional on their choice. But that doesn't let us off the hook from praying for them and continuing to invite them. Well, those foolish bridesmaids were not ready. They didn't have one drop of oil in their lamps. There is no faith, no belief, no commitment at all to Christ. And Jesus is sending those kind of people a a warning loud and clear. So that's ultimately part of what this parable is teaching for those who have not yet decided to follow Christ. What about those who have made Jesus the one they follow, the one they put their trust in? Does this parable have anything to say to us who've been following Jesus for years? Pastor and author John Piper says this. He says, watch does not mean look out the window at night. It doesn't mean go up on a mountain and wait. Even the wise virgin slept when it was time to sleep. Watch means be spiritually awake. Be alive and alert to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he gives now. Use all of the means that God has given you to know him, love him, and trust him. Be filled with the oil of faith and joy and hope. Let this thought govern your life. Jesus Christ came to betroth the people to himself at the price of his own blood. If I'm a part of that betrothed people by faith in Jesus, he will come to me and all who believe in him and say, Come, O faithful bride, enter in. So the five foolish virgins or bridesmaids go off to buy oil that they didn't have. They didn't bring any with them. They have to go off and buy some. What happens when they arrive at the house where the wedding celebration has become? Well, let's pick it up in verse 10. Matthew 25, verses 10 through 13. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Those are some pretty harsh words. Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And it might trigger in our memory that we've heard Jesus say that somewhere before. Those words are pretty much paralleled in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evil doers. Wow. 
You know, so many people say, I just, I love Jesus because he's so nice. He never says anything offensive. That is seriously offensive right there. I mean, did you cast out a demon this past week? To be honest, I didn't. And how much faith would that take? Incredible faith. How many miracles has God performed through you this week? I would take incredible faith. And Jesus is saying, if ultimately, even though you're doing out of this world, amazing, incredible actions for me, and your heart isn't right, you don't have true, sincere faith in your heart, then Jesus is going to say, away from me, you evildoer. That is unbelievably offensive. And yet Jesus says it. He gets right in our face. He gets right to the issue. As has been said many times, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Where does our heart lie in relation to Christ? Have we fully committed ourselves to him or not? Not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Kind of reminds me of the Grammy Awards and the Oscar Awards. You ever watch those shows? Inevitably, there's some artist that you know a little bit about their life just because our culture's media obsessed and you almost can't escape it. You know that they've been arrested twice, they've passed out, they've drove their car off the road because they were drinking and dry, whatever craziness is going on. And then they get up at the awards ceremony and they're like, their first words out of their mouth, I would just like to thank God for this award. And I always think, "Uh uh-huh. I'm not sure God is done with you yet. He may have given you an award, but he's got a bigger purpose for your life. You know, sometimes we can drift into that place where we're naming God when it's convenient for us and forgetting him the rest of the time. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that a vague belief in God is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. James chapter 2 says it pretty pointedly. It says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Wow, another in-your-face harsh verse. It's not enough, the Bible says, just to kind of have this belief. Yeah, God is up there somewhere. That does not qualify us to spend eternity with Christ. True belief results always in realignment of our will with Jesus' will. The realignment of our choices, our actions, so that they honor Christ. Our five foolish virgins and bridesmaids are representative people that go through life with kind of that vague understanding that God's up there somewhere. But in their heart of hearts, they have no true belief. Those five young women are representative of those who have never stopped living for themselves and started living for Christ. The thought of changing their lifestyle and actually spending time and money to go on a mission trip doesn't really occur to people like that. The thought of freeing up time to serve, maybe here in town at the soup kitchen or the food bank or any of the other things in town that desperately need volunteers. So these five foolish virgins and bridesmaids show up at the wedding hall and they're knocking on the door. Lord, Lord, they say, open up the door for us. We're here. And how does he reply? Truly, I don't know you. 
I think those are some of the saddest words anyone could ever hear. But here's the thing. We need to properly understand how Jesus says those words. He doesn't kind of utter those words with an attitude that kind of says, well, I told you so. Too bad, so sad. You're too late. Bye. That is not Jesus' heart. Jesus utters those words with tears rolling down his cheeks. Jesus' heart for his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters is heart-wrenching. One day, Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, and he said these amazing words. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You can see that Christ's heart was broken for those who were invited to the wedding, but ultimately say no. 2 Peter 3.9, a verse close to the end of the Bible says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is why the bridegroom delays His second coming. It's not because Jesus is too busy or he got uh, distracted up there water skiing or snowboarding or something. He is delaying his return because he does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to faith. He gives us as many chances as possible. But it won't last forever. One day he will return and he will welcome everyone who has called on his name in sincere faith into the wedding celebration. In this particular parable, Jesus summarizes the entire point in one direct command. He is coming back one day. He may delay, but, they, but he is extremely clear on what he wants us to be doing in the meantime. He says it in verse 13, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. As pastor and author Daryl Johnson comments on the application of this parable, he says, Jesus, the bridegroom himself, gives us the oil. He gives us the faith. He comes to us mediated through the person of the Holy Spirit. To be ready for his arrival means receiving the gift of his presence, both initially and every day after. For someone who doesn't know yet know Christ, it means begin following Jesus. Take that initial step of faith. Make Jesus the one who saves you and the one who guides you throughout your life. For those of us who already know Jesus, it's a continual process of acknowledging his presence, inviting Christ into every single situation in our life. You know, if you're a high school or college or university student, uh, there are those moments you know when you've studied and everything, but you walk into that exam room and you almost panic. You're like, ah, I think I'm going to fail. I don't know anything. And I think it's in those kind of moments when we're super stressed, we simply go, yeah, but Christ is here right beside me. He's with me every step of the way. Maybe in, in our working lives, we walk in and we know when we walk into that staff room, we are walking into a conflict situation that we're not getting along with our coworkers or they aren't getting along something and there's every part of us is just I just want to walk away I don't want to deal with it but in those stressful moments we know you know what Christ is with me every step of the way 
Maybe you have a job where you've got to do something really dangerous. One of the guys at the mill was telling me the other day they had to crawl right inside a huge piece of machinery. In those kind of moments, when it's extremely dangerous, when you're time pressured, Christ is right there with us. And I think what Jesus is saying to those of us who already know him in this parable, be watchful, be prepared, and always be cognizant, be, be thinking, be understanding that in your lamp, the presence of the Holy Spirit is right there inside of us. It's a beautiful picture, those, those bridesmaids walking beside the, the bride and the bridegroom with that lamp on fire, glowing, giving light to everybody. You know, a favorite saying that's around our house, we quote uh, the Seattle Seahawks quarterback, Russell Wilson. He's actually a Christian guy. And uh, he's made this statement. He said, the separation is in the preparation. And he was meaning it in terms of football. He was saying, if I'm going to perform well in the big game every week, It's the practice that matters every single day leading up to that. And this guy is a workhorse. His uh, workout routine, the way that he prepares, it's incredible. He's been to two Super Bowls already, and I don't even think he's 27 yet. The separation is in the preparation. And when I think about the ultimate point of this parable, Jesus is saying to each and every person on planet Earth, he's saying walking through life, dazed, confused, and half asleep is not what I intend for you. I've got a better life for you than that. Jesus is saying, be watchful, be prepared in your soul for the challenges of this life and the life to come. Amen? Amen. Grant, come pray for us.